Welcome to the North Sound Church Podcast. For more information about North Sound Church, please visit our website at northsoundchurch.com. Good morning, North Sound family. It's wonderful to see you today. Thank you for joining us for worship. And I don't know how many of you are praying for good weather. Last Sunday, I noticed that they said that we had already had in the first week of May more than the average rainfall for May. And so we did have that nice little break yesterday afternoon. It was kind of nice uh, where the weather cooperated. But hopefully it's going to get better uh, in spite of uh, Pastor Allen's um, perspective on, uh, on the weather. I'm, I'm hoping for, uh, for good things. So we are beginning a new series today, and uh, I'm kind of excited about it. It's a series about the Bible, and uh, it's a series that's important to us because um, the Bible is such an important piece of our life as followers of Jesus Christ. I meant to bring a Bible from my office, but I do have one right here in front of me, so you can have a look at that one and uh, understand what I'm talking about. It's interesting to me how Um, Over the years, in my lifetime, we've gone from the King James Version, which is what I memorized, and it just listed verses one kind of after the other. But when the preacher would preach, we would get out a colored pencil or a highlighter and make notes and all that sort of thing. And now that we've shifted to the phone uh, or uh, a a device of one kind or another, um, I think fewer of us take notes that way. Barb still takes notes in kind of a, a journal that she has. Uh, Some of you do that as well. Um, But um, in spite of the fact that we don't have the the Bible the way we used to, um, it's really proliferated in that we can get it on our devices wherever we are. And so um, I encourage you as we uh, talk about the Bible today, you may want to follow along uh, in the scripture as uh, as we look together. Uh, Pastor Allen earlier was talking about the Memorial Day weekend in which we honor those who died in the service. It reminded me, I told, um, I told this to, to John, uh, John Campbell earlier today, it reminded me of uh, a story that I heard a number of years ago of a little boy who was in the lobby of the church and uh, he, uh, he saw this big golden plaque in the church and it had names on it and the little guy didn't know what that was all about. And so he said, Mommy, what's the deal with, uh, with the plaque with all of the names? And she said, well, sweetheart, those are all the people who died in the service. And the little guy thought for a moment and said, Mommy, was that the first service or the second service? <laughs> Hopefully you're not going to die in the second service this morning. There is a wonderful passage in Psalm 19 that talks about how God has revealed himself to us. And uh, I want to read part of that to you. We're going to talk about it in actually three sections here. But this first one talks about something called general revelation. The Bible doesn't use that word exactly, but uh, that's the term that we have theologically for it. And then we're going to move on and talk about special revelation. So right now this is general revelation, and I want you to see the context here in the words of the psalmist. The psalmist begins with the words, the heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. 
The, the beauty of what we're talking about here, the beauty of this particular passage is that we see in nature what we call natural theology. We see the wonders of God displayed. And the writer goes on to talk more and more about this particular beauty. He says, day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. And like a strong man runs the court, its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. So general revelation describes how we can actually have some knowledge of God from the beauty that is around us. The heavens declare the glory of God. I love the way the poet Gerald Manley Hopkins puts it. He says, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. Some of you may remember Hans Boersma being with us. And Hans talked to us about the sacramental nature of the world, of creation, what God has done. And it's a wonderful thing to be able to behold that. I, I continually, I don't get tired of coming over the hill into Edmonds and seeing the Olympics on a clear day. It just, I just don't get tired of it. It speaks to me of, uh, it speaks to me of God. We are so blessed here in the Northwest to be reminded of that. Our human conscience also is a way in which God can speak to us even while we may not recognize that we have a relationship with Him. There's a little voice inside of us that says, that's probably not a good idea for you to engage in that particular behavior because it's not going to end well. And we have that sense um, in our lives, even if we are not followers of Jesus, that there, there is a right and there is a wrong and there is a desire for justice in the world. And where does that come from? Where does that voice come from? There's also the recognition of providence. And again, even those who are not necessarily followers of Jesus Christ will sometimes come to the place where they understand that that. Um, There's something at work in the world that is larger than them. We call it providence, but the the larger point here is that we recognize that God is about the business in a general way in the world around us. But today, and moving forward, we're going to be talking about special revelation, which is a unique revelation of God to us. God revealed himself in creation, but he revealed himself also to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob, to Moses, to the prophets. God has revealed himself to individuals down through history, right on to the time of Jesus Christ and the ultimate revelation of God in his son in Jesus Christ. That's all special revelation. But we also have received God's word, the Bible, as his special revelation to us. In Psalm 19, the the author moves from this passage talking about general revelation, how the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork, talks about it now in specific terms of specific revelation from God or special revelation. Verse 7, 
The law of the Lord is perfect. Notice the language used to refer to his word. The law of the Lord is perfect. How is it perfect? It's perfect in reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. What does it do? It's make wise, it makes wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. They cause the heart to rejoice. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Notice how the word of God is characterized as the law that revives the soul, the testimony that makes the simple wise, the precepts that cause us to find joy, and the commandments that enlighten us with rules to express truth. So his word is so important, it's like the finest possession we can have. It's identified here as gold, which is the finest possession as understood from the psalmist's perspective. And honey, which you may or may not agree, is the finest food. But for many, especially in the ancient world, that was a very special treat indeed. But more importantly, it's not only that Scripture reveals truth to us, but that when we follow God's guidance, it says we have great reward. We have great reward. You see, the Scripture shows us how to live And when we follow it, we have great reward because of the nature of our lives, the goodness of those lives by following the truth that God has for us. Verse 11 of Psalm 19, moreover, by them is your servant warned in keeping them. There is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. It's not unusual for pastors to utter those last words as a prayer before uh, their sermon, before preaching. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. It's an amazing picture of the place of Scripture. Uh, the place of God revealed in our lives in this way. And we see this lived out in the New Testament as well. The verse that Sean read for us this morning, we find these words, all scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I had the privilege of attending Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, Liz brought up a picture there. Our, Our motto of Southern Seminary was these words, so that the servant of God or the man of God may be equipped for every good work. That's what the purpose of Scripture is. That's what the understanding of Scripture is, is the equipping of us to do the work of God through the truth that is revealed through His Word. Now, I'm going to take a few minutes and just kind of unpack this passage with you. The first thing that we see here is that Scripture is God-breathed. 
The word that we use here, God breathed, also could be translated inspired. Indeed, if you're a King James Version person, you would perhaps know it as uh, that God's word is inspired. And um, the physicians amongst us or the medical people know that uh, inspiration is what we call when we when we breathe, when we, when we breathe in air, we call that inspiration. And inspiration is God breathed as it refers to the scripture. It's God's spirit, God's Holy Spirit, breathing into the author. Now the, the scripture has human authors. And when we read the scripture, we see the uniqueness of those human authors. We see their personalities. We see um, who, they, who they were. But what we believe about that is that it isn't only their words addressing specific situations, but that the word is God breathed. It's the word of God which gives it the authority that it has in our lives. One of the great challenges of the Christian community these days, and indeed we have uh, perhaps somewhat historically as well, but especially in these days in the secular age in which we believe, in which we live, Many of us believe that if the scripture is God-breathed, it's inspired by God, then it's true. And, and what that means for us is that all of it is true. And if all of it is true, then even if it is inconvenient, even if our modern culture say, well, that doesn't work today, um, then um, if we believe it's God's truth, we really don't have much choice but to affirm God's will as revealed in the scripture, even if it's awkward or um, maybe misperceived by those in the secular world. We can't do what some folks do, and that is excise parts of the Bible that they think are inconvenient. Because when we do that, what we do is we turn the Bible upside down and we say, well, that's not God's word, and that's not God's word, that's God's word. And and if we do that based upon our current secular values, what happens 10 years from now or 20 years from now when values change? We are now continually evaluating where truth is, and the criteria of truth doesn't become the scripture under which we are living under its authority, but in fact, we have now become the authority over what is truth and what isn't. And what values do we use to determine what that truth actually is? The second thing I want to suggest is that Scripture is useful for teaching. As God's special revelation, His God-breathed book, it's what we go to in order to understand God's will. So every Sunday uh, when we open the Bible, we do so to understand God's will. When we have uh, ladies' Bible study on Wednesdays, We gather, or the ladies gather, to understand more fully what God's will is. In our small groups, when we open the Word, in our devotional time, we open the Word to understand what God's will is for each one of our lives. So it's useful for teaching that is revealing God's will to us. We understand from the Word how He wants us to live. We're confronted with truth, and then we need to make a decision how we're going to live that out in our lives. The third thing we have here is that Scripture is useful for rebuking and correcting. I don't know about you, but I don't particularly like those words, rebuking and correcting. When I was a kid, I didn't like to be rebuked or corrected. And as a parent, 
Um, Sean, I didn't like having to rebuke or correct my children because it really truly was miserable to have to deal with that. But the scripture is very clear that we are in the context of Christian community to help one another through the truth of scripture by rebuking or correcting to help us on the journey that God has for us. Through public theology, we engage in our communities for the kingdom of God. But in terms of rebuking and correcting, it's not the world around us. It's not the secular world around us to which we are to uh, rebuke or correct. Um, Now, we can live out as agents of the kingdom of God. We can live out our lives in such a way that the truth of what God would have for our culture is evident. But rebuking and correcting are particularly evident for people within the body of Christ. Remember now that the early church was probably 50 people in the home of one of the wealthier families in the congregation. There were no church buildings to speak of. And so they were pretty much mostly house churches. And because of the number of 50 people, they knew each other intimately. And so when we look at the scripture and we see people messing up, They were able to know that as a body and able to come alongside them. And the goal was not punishment. The goal was always restoration. The goal of rebuking and correcting was to put our arm around each other and to say, you know, if you continue down this path, it's not going to be good for you or it's not going to be good for your family or it's not going to be good for your church. So let's get back on the right path. The goal is always restoration. The goal is not the rebuke and the correction. One of the challenges that we have today is, first of all, we don't know each other as well because of the nature of church. Uh, And the other problem is, is that instead of that intimate community in which we were bound to each other, if we edge toward rebuke or correction, typically the individual that's being helped simply says, I don't like this and moves to another church and danger of repeating that same kind of thing in a new setting. May the Lord help us to be open, all of us, to be open to words of correction in our lives. Just as to raise our children, we have to offer words of correction in order for them to develop the character that they need for the future. Finally, speaking of character, we read that Scripture is useful for training in righteousness training and righteousness. The word training here is very important. It's another expression of the word of God being used in discipleship. Training is a form of discipleship. It's really another word for discipleship. You know, we have tended in the church in my lifetime to emphasize instruction. Uh, Rick Warren, famously pastor in Saddleback Church in California, Um, has helped other churches in so many different ways. But one of the things that Rick does that is he calls his first class Discipleship 101, Discipleship 102, Discipleship 103. And bless his heart, Rick is amazing. But the fact of the matter is you don't become a fully devoted follower of Jesus in a class. It just doesn't happen that way. Now, you need the instruction. You need the learning. That's why we do Bible study. But it's a matter of training It's a matter of transformation of character over time that God uses to form us into the people that he wants 
us to be. The same word is used in Ephesians in the context of parenting. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. At one point in my military service, I was the deputy chaplain of the Coast Guard for reserve matters. And uh, my job was to oversee the work of Navy Reserve chaplains in the United States Coast Guard. And because I was in a leadership role, we had a conference in Washington, D.C., and uh, we invited as a special speaker Richard Foster. Some of you may be familiar with him. Um, He wrote this famous book called Celebration of Discipline. And in Celebration of Discipline, he talks about what we're talking about in this section, training and righteousness, and that is that over time, through the way of indirection, we practice disciplines over here, but it's going to change our character over here. And so it was a joy to meet him. You may not be able to see it from this picture, but he has some uh, Native American heritage and actually has a, a ponytail. And what was exciting to me because I was in the senior leadership group was being able to have dinner with him in Washington and to explore more personally his perspective on discipleship. It's important, I think, for us to understand the context here. Um, I've talked before about uh, the book In His Steps by Uh, Charles Sheldon. And it's a wonderful book written a hundred years ago. And it's where we get, what would Jesus do? WWJD. Um, We've we've talked about that um, before, but the point is, is that that the the book uh, that gives us what would Jesus do um, in his steps suggests that we have the power of character to do what Jesus would do. So when we're confronted with a moral challenge or a dilemma, if we look at our bracelet and we see what would Jesus do, um, that we would have the character to be able to do it. And the problem is that that's not the way God has wired us. We need to become the kind of people that would rake the right moral choice, not the kind of people that would come into a dilemma and ask what Jesus would do when we may not have the character to actually follow through and do what he did. And so this is the background of what discipleship is all about. It's formation of character into the kind of people that would automatically want to do the things that God would have us to do. And so becoming a follower of Jesus Christ involves character change. It involves character change. Several weeks ago, I had the opportunity to take my friend Ben Forrest up to MATA, to the Missionary Aviation Training Academy in, uh, in, in Arlington. Ben, why don't you come on up at this point? And uh, it was a real joy to take him up there because uh, we have developed something of a relationship as a church, and also uh, I have individually. And we've had the, <coughs> the <coughs> excuse me, the opportunity to engage with them. And knowing a little bit about Ben's background, um, I wanted them to meet him. And so uh, Ben has had a very exciting life in aviation. You can see part of it in the picture that we put up there. But I wanted Ben to be able to share with them about his life around airplanes and aviation. And Ben um, did a wonderful job doing that. We had a tour of the facility and then we had lunch together. And, uh, and Ben was able to share with them about his experiences. But we're going to come back to that a little bit because I want you to hear a little bit more about Ben's story. Ben 
Ben, um, tell these folks about how this journey began. I, I started you in the first service at the University of Washington, but actually it was at your home in Bellevue where you began to get the bug for airplanes. And we'll test the microphone. Perfect timing. The microphone turned on as I approached the stage. That's really cool. <laughs> um, yeah, I got a bug for airplanes for my father, who was a World War II B-17 ball turret gunner. And he, for all us kids, used to build model airplanes. And so I kind of bugged with that. And then every summer, for those of you that grew up back in the 50s and 60s and 70s, the Blue Angels would fly in during Seafair with various airplanes. And about 1967 or so, they flew in with F-4 Phantom. If you're familiar with that airplane, it's a twin-engine, smoky beast that just makes a ton of noise, and it was spectacular. And I was 17 years old. They flew over our house in their diamond formation. I said, I want to do that. How do I do it? So I found out a program at the University of Washington. It's called the Aviation Reserve Officer Candidate Program, and they sign you up your sophomore year between your junior and senior years. You go down to Pensacola for officer candidate school, where a drill instructor runs you around and you take a bunch of academics and that kind of thing. Then you go back to school after eight weeks, finish your degree, which I did the next June, then head right back to Pensacola, finish your officer candidate school over three weeks, then start flight training. And the flight training takes about 16 months or something, a couple different kinds of airplanes. You learn how to land aboard ship on those two airplanes, do all kinds of other things that tactical airplanes do, like flying formation and instruments and all that fun stuff. And then, if you do okay, they let you fly that big smoking beast that I was talking about. And I got to fly the big smoking beast when I was about 23. <laughs> and I remember at NAS Miramar, where Top Gun, the original film was filmed, at being at the end of that runway, 2-4 right, and pushing the power up and then going to full afterburner so you have almost 40,000 pounds of thrust, pushing it down a runway, and I said, ha, it was a religious experience. <laughs> anyway, I was lucky, very lucky, uh, to have that opportunity. And uh, I, I think it leads to some other things. Yeah. But, yeah. Well, Ben, you, um, I was told the folks in the first service that Ben's kind of my alter ego because I wanted to fly when I was a kid. My seventh grade school newspaper had our career choices, and mine was pilot. But I discovered you couldn't have eyes like mine and fly in the military. And so um, I have admired my alter ego here. I became a, a pastor and a chaplain, and this guy kind of pursued that, that exciting journey that I had uh, thought <clears throat> I would enjoy doing. But the story continues, Ben, because you, um, you transitioned from the Phantom to the, the Tomcat, which those of you that watched the original Top Gun movie, it was an F-14 Tomcat that they were flying. And by the way, the new movie is out, I don't know, in a week or so, I think, mm -hmm. Ben. Um, so tell us about the transition and then your continued role. I think you became a squadron commander. Yeah, I was uh, very lucky. I had 13 years in a reserve squadron in San Diego after teaching in the Phantom on active duty. And oh, by the way, you guys may not know this, but this gentleman right here just flew his first cross-country solo in an airplane the other day. I got pictures to prove it. Congratulations, Barry. Oh. That's a big deal. Thank you. Yeah, so I, I, I left the service on active duty and moved one hangar down to the reserves, which is really cool, and also started with the airlines and, at Continental Airlines at the time, and uh, flew the F-4 Phantom uh, for another seven years or so, and then we transitioned to the F-14 Tomcat. Uh, I was lucky enough to go through Top Gun and the Phantom earlier on, uh, which is a really cool, fun thing to do. Uh, but more importantly, just 
being with that great squadron and those great people and flying this great airplane, uh, all of which is kind of leads to the rest of the story about how intense I was at that time. Yeah, you were very intense and it amazed me with your energy because you transitioned from active duty to the reserves, uh, were the squadron commander for uh, the Tomcat, um, served with some airlines, ended up with Alaska Airlines, and uh, not only as a pilot, but you moved kind of through the ranks quickly to be a vice president. Tell us about that journey. Well, that was really fortunate. I was... uh... 48 years old, and I'd started a little business stuff, and I missed flying. I'd left it for about a year, and I retired early from Continental when I was 47. And have the good good buddies at Alaska. They got me on there, 1998 at 48. And um, about eight years later, I found myself in the position of being vice president of flight operations, which amazed even me. Uh, so, and that was that was fun, enriching, really cool, very intense uh, to get all that done. Um, so that's kind of the next and, part of the story. Yeah, so, so uh, what, what amazed me about Ben in this story of his journey was um, that he also became an entrepreneur. So you've got a lot of stuff going on in this life, and um, you see the pictures here. So the, uh, underneath are two companies Ben has founded, Forest Sound Products and Hush Curtain, and I'm going to ask him to tell you a little bit about that. But the other picture here is Ben... Uh, at the Foster School of Business at the University of Washington. And Ben, rather than me describe why your picture was taken, and uh, this is from a story in the Foster School of Business magazine. Um, tell us tell us the background of that, but also Forest Sound Products and how that sure. got going. Now, the, the picture actually is taken at the Foster School of Business new building, and uh, my company, Forest Sound Products, that I started in 1998, uh, was lucky enough in 2008. And Jeannie, are you here? There she is. See Jeannie over there, Jeannie Kelly? She was our head of operations at Forest Sound Products at that time and also is a spirit woman, uh, one of the most amazing people I've ever met in my life, and I thank you. You are part of my journey, by the way. Anyway, that was, that's pretty cool. Uh, the hush curtain part you see in the lower right-hand corner, uh, that's an invention of mine uh, in 2010. I was in San Diego doing some business, and a facilities director at Alvarado Hospital asked me to solve a noise problem. That was my business, solving noise problems. And I went into the ED where he had nurses and doctors that could not talk to one another at peak census. It was so noisy. So I came up with a solution, but you couldn't do it because there wasn't enough room in the walls and ceilings. And I came up with an idea to make the privacy curtain into a big acoustical baffle. That acoustical baffle blocks and absorbs noise, took care of their problem of communication, also gave privacy to the patient system. Anyway, and uh, that kind of took off. My daughter now runs that business, which is really cool. Uh, Forest Sound Products was sold at the end of last year, so I'm, for the first time in 50 years, I'm not really doing much except talking at church with Barry. Uh, Pretty cool. And uh, the the uh, you were involved in the redevelopment or the new building for uh, the Foster School. Yeah, the, our our crew did that. Uh, that uh, was the first big contract we had, actually, and it, we kind of bet the farm on it, and it worked really well. And Jeannie was there for that too. All the ups and downs and backs and forths. But it turned out in a beautiful edifice. If you've ever been in the University of Washington, look at the Foster School of Business on the inside and outside. It's covered with a bunch of wood, acoustic stuff, and our guys did that. If, you, um, if you're interested further, you can just Google uh, Foster School Ben Forrest, and you can read about Ben's background in this particular moment with this picture. <clears throat> but Ben, the thing that was particularly uh, moving to me, uh, really actually emotional for me, was 
when we're sitting around the table there at the Missionary Aviation Training Academy and Ben was sort of regaling the pilots and the students with carrier landings that went well and didn't go well. And uh, he was a landing signal officer, so he was the guy not only in the airplane, but also helping others to come down. And if you want to talk to Ben afterwards, I think he can stick around for a bit and, uh, and, and can share some stories with you if you like. But what was particularly moving to me was at a moment where the conversation transitioned from talking about flying and business and these kind of things, where Ben said, you know, he said, the people that knew me 10 years ago would not recognize me today. And I see Jeannie back there nodding. Um, Sheila is on the worship team, and Sheila caught me between services and said, uh, you know, mom, mom, knew, mom knew Ben when he was this intense um, guy and not, not so spiritual. And so, um, Ben, tell us about the spiritual journey before we're done this morning. Yeah, my brother, who was in the congregation for the first service, I think, really started working on me a long time ago. I mean, 25 years ago, probably. And he just kept at it and kept at it, kept at it. I'll say that I was uh, religiously agnostic. Uh, intellectually, I, I had a hard time capturing what I needed to capture. And I had the good fortune to marry this incredible woman uh, about two years ago now. And she, starting five years ago, kind of finished the work that Ward had been doing and brought me into belief in Christ and how he carried himself and how he acted each day. And Jeannie is one of those people, when you meet her, she is the absolute perfect example of someone that lives by the word. Uh, So I was lucky enough to say, come out of this cocoon I was in and I was baptized by Barry across the street and I like to say I'm still an absolute neophyte to this whole process, but I very much appreciate it. I very much appreciate this group. People ask me why I like where we are. Is this group of like-minded individuals you get to meet every Sunday and be in a spirit of giving spirit of Jesus? It, it, it means a lot to me. And mm-hmm. frankly, this guy, as you know, does a terrific job keeping us on that right path <laughs> with great examples. It was, uh, it was so much fun when Ben presented for baptism. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, um, his wife, Terry, was in the first service this morning. Ben and Terry live here in Edmonds now. They also have a place in San Diego, which I, I told the folks every naval aviator has to have a place in San Diego as well as, uh, as, well as in Seattle. Uh, but uh, Terry sent a Bible for me to be able to present um, to, um, uh, to Ben on the occasion of his baptism, and that was deeply meaningful. Ben, thank you for being part of the family. Thank you for sharing your story. Would you join me in thanking Ben for sharing this morning? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your blessing in our lives, and we thank you, Lord, for this transformation of character that we're talking about that we've heard in Ben's life. Lord, Ben continues on that journey as each one of us does. But we thank you, Lord, that there is that that moment in which we recognize that we surrender the leadership of our lives to you. And I thank you, Lord, that Ben and the others in our room today have chosen to do that. Help us now to live forward, Lord, in the training in righteousness that your word is to do in our lives. 
that we would be the kind of people of character that would make a difference in this world. In Jesus' name we pray.